0: You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Read the first five, or follow along in your Bible with me as I read the first five verses. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word this morning. And once again, Lord, we ask that you would minister to our hearts. We open our hearts to the Holy Spirit this morning. And we ask for understanding. We ask for application of your word in our lives. Lord, help us to leave this place not just saying, uh, wow, that was that was great, or that I liked that, or maybe I didn't like that. But But help us to leave this place going, Lord, how can I apply your word in my life today? Because, Lord, we all know that we have today and we have that day when we will stand before you. And, Lord, we just pray that we could do so, uh, not, not in shame or not in anxiety, but, Lord, in anticipation and excitement and hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> The title of our message is the same as the theme, which is God's praise is better than man's applause. There's an old saying that says, don't be a Christian that is so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good. Anybody ever heard that phrase? I I have, and you know, I've actually used it a time or two, but I guess I can't use it anymore after what I'm going to say now. As catchy and cliche as that phrase is, it's actually not biblical (laughs) because Colossians chapter three and verse two tells us to keep our minds or set our minds on the things above, not on things of the earth. So I feel dumb, but thus we see that the Bible teaches us as a Christian who is heavenly minded, we will actually be more earthly good if we do that, if we put our minds on the things above. And in the verses that we're studying today in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is teaching the church that God's praise is better than man's applause. And we all need to ask ourselves, who are we living for or what are we living for? Are we living for God's praise or man's applause? Now, Paul is telling us that uh, in these first five verses, starting off with a little bit of a, a reminder about preachers. If you recall from last week, Paul had been talking about the Christian leadership in the Corinthian church, and he was saying, hey, listen, guys, every man's work is going to be judged on that day. And so in light of that, he, he was telling them, gave them a couple of commands, but he starts off in verse one of chapter four with another one of those commands he says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. So, Paul making a point here that preachers are, are going to be judged by Christ and not men. And he connects these thoughts with the previous ones by using that word let once again in verse 1. Remember, there were two other let commands in chapter 3, the chapter before this. The first one was in uh, chapter 3, verse 18, where it said, let no one deceive himself. Paul was speaking in regards to the thinking that, hey, God is happy with the fact that we are uh, uh, being prideful about our teachers, that we are, uh, you know, basically... uh, you know, clinging to one teacher above and beyond all the rest, saying that he's better. And, and, and they thought that in doing that, they were doing good. But Paul says, hey, don't deceive yourselves. That's worldly wisdom. And then the second let command was there in verse 21, where he said, let no one boast in men. He says, guys, it's, it's not. stop acting with worldly wisdom and boasting about men. Instead, we need to boast about what God has done. The message of the gospel is what we need to be boasting about. And then this third let here in chapter 4, verse 1, ties it all together. And this is a command that's aimed at at, at teaching the Corinthians how to view their leaders correctly. And so Paul, in verse 1, he begins to describe himself and all the other apostles and all the other Christian leaders with two words that he chooses very carefully. And I want to take some time this morning because these two words are very rich in meaning. And I want to study each one of them and extract the full weight of what Paul is saying. So to do that, we're actually going to learn a little bit of Greek together this morning. See, the the New Testament was written in the Greek language. And when you take those words in their original context and in the original language, you can sometimes extract some really neat truths from them. So I want to do that with you guys this morning. Uh, our first subpoint is the, the word servants and stewards. These are the two words that Paul uses to describe his apostleship, his leadership. And the first thing that I want to point out to you is that word servant. In the Greek, that is huperetes. Huperetes, okay? Now I want to hear from you on the count of three, that exact same Greek pronunciation, okay? So one, two, three. Okay, some of you guys sound great. Some of you guys, I don't know. We'll have to keep working on it. Huparetes. Huparetes. What does that mean? Well, that word is a very uh, uncommon word in the Bible. In fact, in all of Paul's writings, he uses it only one time, right here. All of the rest of the time that Paul says servants or ministers, he's using the Greek word diakonos. Or diakonos, which is uh, where we get our Greek, our English word, it's all Greek to me, by the way. Uh, We get our English word deacons from that word, okay? But but here, Paul uses huperetes instead of diakonos. And and this is because it literally means under rower. That's what this word means. Huperetes literally means under rower. It refers to the slaves who were under the deck of the Roman warships. Roman warships where they were destined uh well, sorry, destined. They were chained to each other and to their benches. A little mix up here. And they were responsible for rowing that ship to its destination. These slaves were the lowest and most despised slaves in the entire Roman Empire. In fact, if you've ever seen the movie Ben Hur, then you you remember the main character Charlton Heston He was number 41, right? Chained to that oar with all those sweaty guys in the bottom of that ship. And he was tasked with rowing that ship to the beat of that drum, right? As the captain gave the orders, they were passed down to the underneath the ship and the drum was being beat and those guys were, that was their rhythm. They were just rowing that ship to its destination. That's the word that Paul is using here and it captures all of that detail in it. All of these slaves, they had one common rank, the lowest. All of these guys, they had one common goal. It was row the ship to its destination. So what Paul is saying is that the church is to view the church leadership, the the, the preachers, the apostles, the leaders, hey, they're nothing more than under rowers for Jesus Christ, tasked with the responsibility of answering to the command of the captain, Jesus Christ. That's our job. That is all that any leader in the church is supposed to be. That is what your elders at Calvary Chapel of Paris are called to be. We are men who are responsible to Jesus Christ, our captain. You know, first and foremost, my life is to be subject to the word of God. I'm not special. I don't get any special passes. <laughs> Neither do our elders. We are called to be men that are faithfully rowing the ship to its destination any Christian leader is to be that. Now, how do you know if you are that kind of a godly leader? How do you know if you are the kind of leader that God wants in His church? Well, the being a true servant, being an under-rower, it begins where the rewards, the thankfulness, and the appreciation ends. You know, a true servant is willing to do the thankless jobs with a good attitude and the right heart. <laughs> Somebody who's an under-rower is willing to clean out the greasy sink in the kitchen after the men's bacon breakfast. Okay? That's just a little word picture for you. Actually, speaking about the underar, recalls to mind the faithful assistant pastor for Pastor Chuck Smith. He was the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement there in Costa Mesa, California. And he had a a faithful assistant pastor who worked for him for 30 years until he died. He was a, a, an ex-Marine. He went by one name. Everybody knew him. He, nobody called him Pastor. They just called him Romaine. <laughs> and his job was to assist Pastor Chuck in whatever he needed help with. But oftentimes, he would deal with the folks that would come into the church. It was a very large church. And so uh, very often, folks would come into the church office, and they would say, Hey, I, I feel like God wants me to serve in, in, in whatever capacity. I, you know, I want to serve. How, how do I get involved? And this Romain, this Pastor Romain, he would walk down the hallway to the broom closet and he would take out a broom. And he would put it in their hands and he would say, "Uh, we need you to sweep the parking lot. And so these people would begin by going out into that parking lot. And it was a big parking lot. And they would just be out there with a broom, you know, sweeping that thing going, really? Is this really what I'm supposed to be doing right now? And, And really what it was, was it was just a test from Pastor Romain to see if this person was really wanting to serve Or if they really kind of just wanted a a position and a title and that sort of thing. And it was just a test that he had for everybody that would come into the church there. It was interesting to see the different reactions that he would get. But there were many pastors, many Calvary Chapel pastors that are pastoring uh, very large churches today. Who started out with a broom in that parking lot. Sweeping cigarette butts into a pile. And sweeping gravel into a pile and then scooping it up. And that's what they did. That's how they got their start. And because they were faithful in those small things, the Lord is now obviously using them in many great things today. But the question for you is, are you serving in this way? Are are you willing to serve in whatever's put before you? If so, you're imitating the Apostle Paul, who is a godly man and a man that did great things for the Lord and his kingdom. Never underestimate the day of small things, church. It just may be that the Lord, asking you to be faithful in one small thing, has a much greater thing in mind down the road, but we must prove ourselves to be faithful in that small thing, under rowing, that grabbing of the oar, and simply rowing the ship one row at a time closer to its destination. The second word that Paul uses to explain the office of apostleship there is as stewards. He uses, we are servants and stewards. Stewards is the Greek word oikonomos. Oikonomos. Let me hear you say that on the count of three. One, two, three. Oikonomos. Not oink, oink. It's oikonomos, okay? Oikonomos. One, two, three. Oikonomos. oikonomos. All right, you guys are there. you got got two, two Greek words down. This is fun. I love doing this. But these Greek words, again, this this word, it gives us some insight into what Paul exactly means. This word was very common to the Greek culture of Corinth. It referred to a person who was uh, usually a slave that administered the day-to-day operation of a wealthy man's estate. He was someone who owned nothing, yet managed everything. Now, in that Greek culture, everyone knew what Paul meant because this was a very a trustworthy slave. Not just any slave was given the task of being a steward, only the most trustworthy slaves, those that had proven themselves over time to be capable of carrying out the small tasks. The steward was usually the most valuable possession of the household. Now, Paul is saying that everyone who's a teaching leader in the church is a servant, but a servant who has been entrusted with managing. Now, what are they managing? Well, not the church. It's not my task or the elders' task to manage the church. What does it say? It says we are called to manage the mysteries of God. That's what verse 1 tells us. What does it mean to manage the mysteries of God? Well, that means that we've been entrusted with administering the spiritual truths of God's word. Okay? Anytime you see that phrase, mysteries of God, Paul likes to use it a lot. He uses it in some of his other letters as well. Mysteries of God simply means spiritual truth that at one time was hidden, but now it's been revealed. So all of the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament, they point to Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was born and lived his life and died and was resurrected, he fulfilled all of those promises and those truths. And so Paul, it means, hey, all of the spiritual truth related to Jesus Christ, it once was hidden, but now that Jesus has come, it's been revealed. These are the mysteries of God. It's the spiritual truths that pertain to the gospel. So Paul says, listen, as leaders in the church that teach, my calling is to be an under rower, bringing the ship to its destination, and a steward. I manage the mysteries of God, the spiritual truths about the gospel. That's what I'm tasked with, Paul says. So the question is not, is Paul popular? The question is not, hey, is Apollos a more dynamic speaker than Paul? The question should be, hey, has Paul, has Apollos, has Peter, have they been faithful in administering the needs of the church? I'm sorry, not the needs of the church, but administering or faithfully communicating The truths of God to us. You know what, guys? There is so much pressure today on pastors and preachers to be popular or to be dynamic speakers or to be, uh, uh, you know, cool or whatever it might be. And that pressure comes from a lot of different areas within our culture, but it can also come from members of the congregation. But Paul here, he wants to make something clear. He's making clear that a church which operates in the sphere of spiritual wisdom, not worldly wisdom, but in spiritual wisdom, hey, that congregation is going to be marked by a couple of things. Number one, it's going to be marked by a preacher that is faithful to communicate God's words. Number two, it's going to be marked by a congregation who measures the preacher by what he is teaching the congregation, not by how dynamic he is or charismatic or popular or how great the sermon is, okay? So, so, guys, a lot of you guys are very encouraging to me. And you let me know, hey, that was a good message, and I appreciate that. I really do from the bottom of my heart. But at the same time, what God is worried about more than that is, hey, are, are you being faithful with those truths that have been entrusted to you? It's not just whether or not the message was good and whether or not it served you or not, but hey, how are you faithfully uh, taking that word and applying it in your life? The question that I have for you this morning is how do you measure the churches that you attend? How do you measure the church when you are looking for a church to, you know, to, to make your home? Are you looking to see if the preacher's faithful? In teaching the Word of God? Or are you looking perhaps to see if you were entertained when you left that day? We really need to understand something, guys. We really need to understand that God is not so much concerned with fruitfulness as He is concerned with faithfulness, okay? Let me say that one more time. God is not so much concerned with fruitfulness. What He is concerned with is faithfulness, okay? Hey, listen, what that means is fruit will take care of itself. Hey, when's the last time you saw a fruit tree struggling to produce fruit? It doesn't happen, does it? it, it just, you, you never see that pear tree in your backyard going, you know, trying to produce that fruit. That fruit will come in a season as long as you water it and make sure it's got some fertilizer and you take care of it. It's going to produce that fruit. That's what God is wanting us to know. That's what the, the, the word is teaching us is that, look, faithfulness is the point. Whatever God's called us to do, He's called us to do it faithfully because, in time and in season, hey, that fruit will appear. That fruit will come in our lives. And God wants us to understand that. You know, we've been called to be under rowers, responsible to hear and to carry out the commands of Captain Jesus. And we've also been called to be stewards of the spiritual truths of the Word of God. We've been tasked with feeding faithfully, the household of God. That's what a leader, a Christian leader, is supposed to be uh, in the church, a teacher, a preacher. Now, if we're faithful in those things, we will be a success in God's eyes, because remember, God's praise is better than man's applause. We are living for that day, God's praise, and not man's applause. Now, we come to our 2nd subpoint today, where Paul's making the point that preachers are not subject to the judgment of men. He says that in verses 3 through 5. Pick it up with me. We read in verse 3, But with me, Paul says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Let's pause here for a moment. Paul. Notice that Paul doesn't say there in verse 3, he doesn't say that their judgment of him was nothing. He admits it did hold a small place in his heart, (laughs) and that's good. You see, every good leader is going to be willing to listen to his critics. We have to realize that. Hey, we need to be searching our critics, what what they're telling us to see. Is there a grain of truth in that? Uh, And and if you're not open to that, I, I would suggest to you that you need to grow in your leadership. We need to be open to uh, uh, listening to what our critics say and, and mining for that grain of truth that may be at the heart of it. Now, of course, if there is no truth in it, we need to cast it out. But if there is that grain of truth, we need, to, we need to cut down just to that grain of truth, throw everything else away, but take that grain of truth, and we need to do some introspection. Some healthy self-examination is never a bad thing. But Paul, just like a good leader... Whether he admits it or not, Paul is wounded by this criticism. That's why he says there, hey, with me it is a very small thing. He's admitting, look, hey, you guys have hurt me. Paul, Paul's admitting, he's saying, look, the stuff that you're saying about me on the side, it does, it hurts. You know, many people don't realize that, that, that ministers, hey, we hear the things that people say about us. Maybe not directly. I would prefer it if it was directly, by the way. But, but a lot of times it, it's, it comes in a roundabout way. You know, that reminds me, it was so funny, and I'm straying from my notes, which is always dangerous, but it reminds me of when I was uh, uh, being interviewed to come to Calvary Chapel of Paris, Texas, and uh, a couple of the, the, the elders on the board were asking me lots, lots of good questions, and one of, the, one of the questions they asked me happened to be about, you know, well, how would I handle criticism or whatever, you know, and, and I, I said, well, you know, how is this criticism being given to me? Is this, is this guy in my face? And, and they're like, uh, uh, oh, yeah, okay, he's, he's talking to you and he's you're sharing things that maybe you don't like to hear. And I said, well, is he putting his hands on me? You know, <laughs> and, and they just started laughing. It was kind of a funny moment, a film moment where I, I stuck my foot in my mouth. But, you know, this this... It, 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 we have to remember, guys, hey guys, we, we I have a family i 've got a wife i 've got some children <laughs> I, I I live just like you guys do, and you know criticism hurts Paul, and Paul admits I say it 's a very small thing, but it is a thing it does hurt Look, we got to remember that don 't we? We have to remember that hey, even maybe you 're not criticizing me, maybe you 're criticizing a different preacher, uh, and you know i 've done this too I, I, I know I have, and it's it 's not glorifying to the Lord And I, we need to repent and ask the Lord to forgive us when we do it. But, man, criticizing another guy, I don't know his motives. I don't know his heart. We I mean, need to be really careful with that. Because, hey, it, it, you know, it, it, it stings. Paul wasn't beyond the sting of his human critics. But he was able to categorize it properly, wasn't he? He says it was a very small thing. And that's categorizing it properly. Because what Paul means by that is that in light of eternity, guys, he knew that his critics were only temporary. He was living to please the one who would outlast the critics. I like that. Paul also, very wisely though, he didn't put too much stock in introspection. There's a place for introspection. There's a place for self-examination. But we can take it too far, can't we? And Paul talks about that. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. He realized that he could be prone to being too harsh with himself. You know, sometimes, guys, if we spend too much time on introspection and self-examination, I'm telling you, we skip that little grain of truth and we take it all and we go, wow, I'm a real loser. Wow, I I really stink, you know? And we begin to just go, yeah, I shouldn't be doing this job. I really need to quit. I need to resign, whatever it is. And we can go too far with it. And Paul says, well, put the brakes on. Let's keep a healthy balance. Hey, there's a small place for the criticism And we take the grain of truth and we we do introspection when it's needed. But listen, we don't go too far. Don't put too much stock in that. He says, I don't even judge myself. Every leader is going to face these situations. And you know what? We have to deliver ourselves to God for judgment. We have to realize that not even our own hearts are capable of correctly judging ourselves sometimes. Did you guys know that Charles Spurgeon suffered with depression? One of the world's greatest preachers. But that man, he would go into just week-long bouts of just depression and darkness. And he would, he would wrestle with whether or not he was even called to be doing what he was doing, whether or not he was going to uh, reach the people that God had called him to reach, and all of that sort of thing. And it just amazes me. But that's, that, that's where we have to realize, hey, we can judge ourselves too harshly sometimes. We need to commend ourselves to the Lord. And that's what Paul says that he does. He says, only our Master in heaven has both the authority and the wisdom to correctly judge us. You know, sometimes we don't really know ourselves. And we can, you know, have that fine line between a clear conscience and being self-righteous. Did you notice that Paul points out very wisely in verse 4? He states that even though his conscience didn't condemn him, he didn't know of anything that was between him and the Lord, he says, but even that doesn't justify him. And that's important to know. I sure am glad that he realized that i sure am glad that he added that, because if he wouldn't have added that, we might go away thinking, well, as long as my conscience doesn't condemn me in what I'm doing, I guess I'm okay. And that would be a very scary world to live in, wouldn't it? If we were all just kind of living along and being self-righteous and going, you know, hey, I guess if my conscience doesn't bother me, then I guess it's okay. No, guys, Paul makes it clear. He says, hey, it's not just my conscience that justifies me. I'm not justified by that. You know why he said that? Because I know some really self-righteous individuals, myself being one of them from time to time, that will just go, oh, well, I'm not bothered by what I'm doing, so I guess it's okay. Guys, we have to be careful to understand and to realize that, no, even our conscience is subject to the Word of God. Just because you don't think that what you're doing might be wrong, or it might be hurting others, hey, it might be doing that, and you need to realize it's not your conscience that justifies you. Ultimately, it is the Lord. Now, On this side of heaven, though, we need to realize people are either going to praise us or they're going to criticize us. And that's just life. But Paul points out that it is God that will be the final judge. And therefore, God's praise is better than man's applause. Paul concludes this section with some more wise counsel for us in verse uh, 5. Pick it up with me. Paul says, Therefore... Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. And I want to pause right here after that phrase, just for a second, and take in the full force of this command. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. Now, what, what is Paul talking about? In light of this, he's commanding us to stop passing critical judgment on Paul's motives and his ministry. And for that matter, we can lump in all, all the preachers. All the Christian preachers that God has called to pastor and teach the church. We need to not put them in a place where we're critically judging their motives and their ministries. Not that Paul isn't saying we should never judge. Of course, that's not what he's saying. Now He, he says judge nothing before the time. But the nothing there doesn't apply to uh, uh, you know, everything. He's, he's applying it specifically to a leader's motives. We're not to be judging a leader's motives, and he's not talking about the practice of exercising good judgment altogether, okay? We know this because in the next chapter, in chapter 5, Paul tells the church, he says, hey, judge those that are on the inside of the church. We are to judge those that are on the inside of the church, he he says. And in chapter 6, he wants them to be able to judge disputes between themselves, not going to the courts to do it. So listen, Paul isn't saying, don't ever judge Christians you know, today, that's kind of a fad in, or in, in, in society. When somebody says, you know, well, that's wrong, uh, people are, are very quick to jump in and say, well, you're judging them. And, and then they say, don't you know that Jesus said don't judge? And they quote Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not, lest you therefore be judged, you know? And, and that's kind of a fad in our, in our culture today. But listen, Jesus didn't mean that we're never to discern between what's right and what's wrong. That we're not to call sin sin and and call what is good good. That's not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was talking about uh, uh, in, in the context there. He's talking about whether or not uh, we're, we're to be giving the gospel to certain people or not. And and later on in, in his ministry, Jesus tells his disciples. He says, "Hey, judge with righteous judgment." So he tells them not to use worldly wisdom to make your judgments, but use righteous wisdom when you make a judgment. And so Paul isn't saying, don't ever judge. That, that would be against what the Bible teaches us as Christians. We are to judge things. We are to know what's right and wrong. We're to know the difference between it. And we are to be able to judge uh, the disputes that happen within a church. We need people that can make accurate judgments. So what is Paul talking about then? He's, again, he's specifically talking about judgments on Paul and by implication other Christian leaders and preachers. You see, there are Christians who take it upon themselves To sit in the judgment seat of God over the lives of certain ministers. And because certain ministers, whatever, you know, don't live up to their expectations, they pass those judgments critically on them. Paul's saying, hey, that shouldn't happen until when? Until that day. He's referring to that day that the Lord comes and we all stand before him at the Bema seat judgment of our works. Remember, that judgment is for Christians. It's for believers in Christ. Remember, it's separate from the, the, the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 19 and 20. There. That, that's a separate time. This, this judgment, the Bema seat judgment, it's when Christians, believers, will all stand before the Lord and will give an accounting for our works. And remember, what is our works? Our works is three things. It's our thoughts, it's our words, and it's our deeds. It's what we do. So it's our thoughts, what we're thinking... It's what we're speaking with our lips, and it's what we're doing with our bodies. What are we giving ourselves to? What are we presenting ourselves to with our bodies? Those are our works, and that is what Paul's talking about. Judge nothing, he says, before that day, okay? That day when we stand before the Lord. God will give us an accurate uh, judgment. And, and that's what Paul says in, in, at the end of verse 5. He gives us a description of that judge to back up his point. He says that that judge, God, he will will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. And then each one's praise will come from God. So there it is, guys. Paul lays it out. He says that the judge who is coming for his church, he's the one who will expose all things that are hidden. Including the secret counsels of men's hearts. The secret motives for why they're doing what they're doing. And all of those motives behind the actions are going to be brought into the open. Wow. That's a scary thought for some of us. And if it's not a scary thought for you this morning, it's because you've drifted off. And I'm, I'm, I've lost you. But if you come back now. Come back. Come back. Hey, know this, guys. Guys. Hey, we will all one day stand before the Lord. And Paul's letter, hey, it's giving good instruction, but it's also giving us the opportunity to come clean. That's what I love about Paul. He's always calling people to come clean. He's always giving them, hey, today's the day. Today's the day to turn away from sin. Today's the day to turn to Jesus. Today's the day of salvation. He lets all of us know that we are candidates who will stand before the Lord on that day, and we will all give an account For how faithful that we were to the gospel message. Both in our own lives and to the world around us. How faithful have we been? How about you? We will either receive praise from God on that day. Or Jesus Christ will expose the motives and the thoughts of our hearts. And whatever it might be. There's a very sure future waiting for all of us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Christians. When you stand before the Lord on that day at the Bema seat, will you be found faithful? Or will your motives and inner thoughts suddenly be brought into the open and your eternal reward disappear? God's praise is better than man's applause. I want to close with this this morning, an illustration but, uh, of a, a real life man who served at a church in Boston. And, and this was written down by the pastor, is actually a bishop of the church, who remembered this man. And, and apparently this man had said to himself, uh, he was a man who served at this church, he said, I can't really speak very well at prayer meetings, I'm not good at praying out loud. And he said, I'm not really good at doing a lot of other things that people do in the church uh, to serve, but here's what I can do, and this is what he uh, proposed to do. I can put two extra plates on my dinner table every Sunday, and I can invite two young men from that church to come home and to break bread with me. He went along doing that for more than 30 years, and he, by doing that, he became acquainted with a lot of the young men that were in that church, and he was actually influential in bringing many of them to, to know Christ personally as their Lord and Savior, one day when he died, he was going to be buried in a town called Andover. It's about 30 miles away from Boston. But because he was a well-known guy, uh, uh, they, they rented or chartered a train to convey the, the funeral party to the funeral there in Andover. And they set aside one whole car, and, and they advertised, and they let it, know, let it be known that, hey, any of these young men that have been touched By the dinner plate ministry of this man, they were welcome to take that car. Well, that car ended up being packed out from end to end with over 150 young men whose lives had been influenced or brought to Christ because of this one man and his ministry to invite two people to come home and to eat with him after church. What can you do for Jesus? What are you doing for Jesus with the life that you have been given Hey, are you a Christian businessman? Don't separate your business from the calling to be a Christian. Combine those. Bring those together. Find ways that you can do what you do for the Lord. And if you're a mom here this morning, be a mom for Jesus. If you're a businesswoman, be a businesswoman for Jesus. Hey, all of us, we've whatever your vocation, whatever it is that you do for a living, all of us can find ways to do that as unto the Lord and receive a reward for it. And if we can't do it, perhaps in the sphere of our workplace, maybe we can find a place here in the church. Guys, there's lots of different areas that you can serve Jesus through doing some small thing. Remember Jesus, what did he say? He said, even one who gives a glass of water in my name, he will not lose his reward in heaven. Jesus has a reward, and he's, he, he knows these things. He, he keeps track of all that we do, guys. And so it's so important, I want to encourage you guys that here at Calvary Chapel, we, we want everybody to be serving the Lord somewhat. You know, you can do that in the church. You can do that outside the church. But let's just do it, whatever we're doing. What are we doing for Jesus? I love that story, the dinner plate gospel ministry. We can get creative. We can think of things through. and We can say, God, how do you want to use me with my specific experiences in life, my skills that you've given me, the talents that I have? God, what would you? how would you want me to apply those? For you and your kingdom. Let's pray.